A note that this episode contains discussion of ableist violence, sexual, physical, emotional, and mental abuse, coercion, confinement, neglect, and torture. Take care of yourself and be kind to one another. School was at Rita Original Hospital School in Smith Falls, Ontario, but it was it was the same place. When I went the first time going in there, I remember they called us out for candies, and the candies were pills, medication, and they would give me these pills to take, and and some of the pills were really you just you just space right out, and you just like you'd be a dopey. We couldn't learn very much because we had all this um, ni- um, nightmares and things in our mind and our head, and, and it was so hard for us. They were so angry, and people were getting upset in school. And still, this day, I, I I think about it a lot, and I say, why did this happen to me and so many Canadians? Did they hate us? Why? And and that questions will be the rest of our lives. We'll be asking why. Why did they give us shock treatment? Why was I sexually assaulted every night for six years? Every night, every night. Sorry. There was people in there were murdered. There was in other institutions they found unmarked graves that people died. But these people didn't get out, but I did. Sometimes I think about, was that fair? Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and in institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions a podcast about the long history of disability confinement in Canada and its ongoing impacts on the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You heard Joe Clayton at the start. He's a proud Algonquin man, artist, storyteller, and survivor of the Rideau Regional Centre. Opening in 1951 as the Ontario Hospital School, Smith Falls, Rideau was the largest of the publicly operated institutions across Canada. At its peak, the institution confined more than 2,650 people labeled with intellectual disabilities. For generations, the label of intellectual and developmental disability has been used to isolate, congregate, and confine infants, children, and adults. Once given the label of an intellectual disability, thousands of people were removed of their autonomy, their decision-making power, and their safety, removed from their communities and warehoused into large-scale institutions far from their homes. And it was called the Mission Ward, where they strip you down naked, where they measure you and and measure your whole body, 
They give you a nightgown to wear for a little while until you go to 3D, and then when 3D you get your civ civilian, I mean your clothes, that they plan for you to wear. It was embarrassed for me because they were stripping me naked and, and they were, you know, examining me and everything else. And then they um, left me stay in the mission ward for a, a week or two. And then they brought me into a ward, it was 3D, and there were uh, male patients. And the male patients uh, were 18, 19, 20, 30 years old. And I was only 12 and a half years old. You imagine to see all these giants. I didn't know where I was. I was thinking that in my mind, where am I? Will somebody come and help me? Will someone come and help me? And I was so scared, you know, I was, I was terrified inside as a little boy, you know? They were in control of, of me. Abandonment, examination, and removal was all part of the admission process. In 1960, the government of Ontario produced a public service announcement walking us through the admission process. Please note that the language used in this video is offensive and does not reflect the language we use today. Each new patient is a complex individual puzzle and must be thoroughly examined and tested before a training program can be planned for him. Roughly, the retarded fit into three categories mildly retarded, moderately retarded, and severely retarded. And naturally, there are several levels within each group. IQ tests help determine the degree of intelligence of the patients. Every detail about the patient is carefully noted. Each completed test and report is part of the whole picture. IQ testing was used, along with adult guardianship, to segregate people into institutions all in the name of care. To this day, people are put in harm's way, all due to IQ labeling. These three categories, mild, moderate, and severe, determined so much about lives lived in institutions. Now, let me be clear, there are no good labels. Each of these categories resulted in a specific type of harm. For people given mild labels, they were given access to education, but also were often forced to work without pay. How you worked? Where did you work? I worked in the laundry. In the laundry. That does not sound like it was a, a good job or something you would... No. No. Lots of heavy clothing, I imagine. Yeah. Did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents a day? Every two weeks. Every two weeks, he got 70 cents. Yeah. I was mowing lawns and he'd get paid $30 for 75 hours. We were doing just as hard work as everybody else that was getting paid minimum wage or more. That mild label, it was used to steal labor from people, making it clear there were no good labels. The severe label came with its own problems, an unending sentence, a sentence to the back wards. The back wards were where the worst abuses in institutions happened. 
because they were the most hidden. In many institutions, the policy was to abandon and neglect patients there, forcing people with disabilities to lay naked in their feces and urine for days. A severe label in the institution meant no hope, no possibility, and no exit. Many of the children and young people would be forced to live their entire lives in these institutions, where they were subject to mental, physical, and sexual abuse. In some institutions, inmates were subject to medical testing, lobotomies, electrocution by cattle prod-like devices, torture, and sterilization. Yeah, you have to listen. There's fear. A little boy at, at 13 or 12 and a half years old, you have fear of, of the staffs. You have fear of what's happening. Every morning you get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and you, your bed is stripped and you have to make it. If you don't make it, you do it all day if you have to. And they throw a bucket of water if you don't wake up on your bed. I was shocked treatment. They said they were going to give me a brain, a brain test, but it wasn't a brain test. It was a shock treatment. They lied to Joe and subjected him to years of violence. Violence done under the auspice of care and treatment. The label of intellectual and developmental disability has resulted in so much harm, and not just to people with disabilities, but all those who were assigned these labels just to rationalize the harm they experienced. Mass confinement, forced sterilization, abuse, separate school systems, family separation, sub-minimum wage labor, and isolation. And this label of developmental and intellectual disability was used as a weapon, used to confine many people that we have always discriminated against. Racialized people, indigenous people, poor people, and sex workers were all labeled with disabilities to justify their confinement. Public campaigns making people labeled with intellectual disability appear to be monsters. And so, for those reasons, the label as a weapon, we use the language people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Maybe you've never heard of institutions, never seen their remnants or heard their stories. Invisibility is a risk and danger. Invisibility means that we haven't learned from the past, and we haven't. Today's government continues to institutionalize people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities across this country. Invisibility only serves those in power by making accountability and justice that much harder to pursue. People with disabilities and their allies have been working tirelessly for the last decades to bring these conversations to the light. In 1959, legendary Toronto Star reporter Pierre Burton 
exposed these conditions. But Aurelia's real problem is one of public neglect. It is easier to appropriate funds for spectacular public projects such as highways and airports than for living space for tiny tots with clouded minds. Do not blame the present Department of Health for Aurelia's condition. Blame yourself. Well, you've been told about Aurelia. In many respects, it is an up-to-date institution with a dedicated staff fighting an uphill battle against despairing conditions. But should fire break out in one of those ancient buildings and dozens of small bodies be found the next morning in the ashes, do not say that you did not know what it was like behind those plaster walls or underneath those peeling wooden ceilings. You have been told. You have been shown. That was 60 years ago. And five years later, in 1965, these institutions were exposed once more, this time by U.S. President Robert Kennedy. We have a situation that borders on uh, a snake pit, that the children live in filth, that uh, many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because lack of attention, lack of imagination, lack of uh, adequate manpower. There's very little future for the children or for those who are in these institutions. Uh, Both need uh, a tremendous overhauling. I'm not saying that those who are the attendants there or the ones that run the institution are at fault. I think all of us are at fault. And uh, I think it's just uh, long overdue that something be done about it. It's been 60 years since he said those words. And we still need a tremendous overhauling. You have been told. You have been shown. Should a virus break out in one of those ancient buildings and dozens of small bodies be found, do not say you did not know what it was like behind those plaster walls. Huge buildings filled with tiny bodies. I can't help but think of the institutions during COVID where dozens of bodies were found, malnourished, neglected, left to die. 60 years of self-advocates family members, and allies demanding freedom, exposing terrible truths, and fighting for more just futures for people with disabilities. That's entire lifetimes. Earlier this February, disability rights activists hosted a press conference to demand the immediate release of Vicki Levesque. Vicky described how she was systematically denied humane options for her care and as a result was trapped in an institution with little end in sight. I had the pleasure of introducing Vicky. So from here I'm going to turn it over to Vicky. Vicky is a community member, human rights advocate and spokesperson for the Disability Rights Coalition of Nova Scotia. For 10 years, Vicki has been forced to live in a long-term care institution because the government has failed to provide her with the resources to support her to safely live in community. So I'm going to turn it over to Vicki now. Okay, thank you, Megan. Um, thank you again, everybody, for coming today. It means a lot to me to know that people are listening because for approximately a decade, um, in the last two years or so, I feel like they have been listening. But for the eight years before that, I felt that I was screaming into a void and no one was listening. So I'm very happy 
that people seem to be listening now. It's the first ever People First Freedom Tour. A group that wants to see people with disabilities taken out of institutions is taking their message on the road. We leave tomorrow morning, which is Saturday. Let's get the message out. Let's free our people. This is called, We Gotta Close the Institutions. We gotta close. Self-advocates and survivors traveled across the prairies in an RV to get the word out, to make a documentary called The Freedom Tour, meant to expose the ongoing truths of institutionalization in Canada. During COVID-19, I found myself among this amazing network of people trying to get the word out, demanding deinstitutionalization. I've been writing, advocating, and researching about disability and deinstitutionalization for a few years. But when COVID-19 started, I got impatient and really scared. Because while the Rideau Regional Center closed, there are hundreds of other institutions that remain in operations. I did my master's of public policy at Carleton, and my research was supposed to be focused on sexuality policy in institutions for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. But there was this huge problem. I couldn't, for the life of me, get the basic facts. I couldn't figure out where people lived, where the institutions were. There's around 16,000 people in residential developmental services. So those are like group homes. But there are more than 20,000 people on the wait list. And as a result, they have to live somewhere. Many people live with family, and there's a lot of limitations to that. But many, many others are displaced across a bunch of other places. So I started to make a map. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this whole time, right, I'm just like trying to look at the bedrooms of people, trying to figure out what kind of beds people slept in. Your access to privacy is really what makes it so that it's easy to masturbate or smooch on the bed or listen to a record with a lover. You know. But when COVID-19 started and other things became a lot more important, these bedroom facts changed shape and became pressing. And there were these two kinds of places that really stressed me out. I couldn't get the basic facts, like how many people lived there, who owned them, 
where they were. Who regulated them? It was weird, and I deeply felt like I was in the abyss. Like, none of the people I knew in the field knew about them. And there was no articles, no media coverage, no data. One of them are called domiciliary hostels. These places weirded me out not because of their, like, strangely Victorian name. They are private and for-profit. Now, the province of Ontario kind of regulated them for a while, until around 2008. So there was like 60 years where they were vaguely regulated by the province. There's been exactly one survey done about them. One! It found that there were 4,700 people living there, and about a third of them have a developmental disability. If you know the stats about the general population, 1% of people have a developmental disability. So these places, there was 30% of the people there had a developmental disability. That's a lot. And around that time, 2007, when they did this survey, other institutions in Ontario were closing. And then domiciliary hostels shifted. So they were no longer regulated by the government. They were municipal responsibilities. And there's like a lot of municipalities. And those municipalities didn't really have to do anything. But one thing that they do is change the names of them and give them a lot more money. So there's a lot more of them. Now, these places caught my attention for a few reasons. They're private and for-profit, and unlike the developmental services sector, people make money off of this. Second, they're big, like 20 people, 40 people, 60 people, 80 people, 120 people living together with only one mandated accessible bathroom. 1950s bedrooms filled with beds and food that looks pretty scary. I was reading Google reviews for days, and maybe they're not the best source. They do tell you something. Everything I've ever read about them haunts me. When you eat in the dining room, you're surrounded by flies. It's even worse in the summertime. The living room lounges have dirty carpet stains, piss stains on chairs, it's disgusting. They clean the bedrooms once every two weeks. They change the bedsheets and blankets and wash dirty floors with dirty water. There were rooms with bedbug infestations. Why would the city of Ottawa allow that? Please, if you have a loved one and you are thinking of moving them there, think twice. He was dirty, in really bad shape. His toenails hadn't been clipped and were growing around his toes. It was a horrible scenario and I called the authorities that I thought could help. I never really got over it. The place smells like urine and laundry comes out smelling like urine. The owner will not rewash to get the smell out. Today at approximately 5.30 p.m., I was driving on Davis Street and nearly hit an elderly man who had wandered onto the highway from the Newmarket residence. I brought him off the road. He was in pajamas and had been incontinent of his bowels, dried and covered his pants to his feet. I then see another man who appeared to be in a total daze. 
falling down in the treed area, covered in mud, wet, and hands bleeding from falling in the brush. Some of the other residents took notice of my car and my presence, so approached to gather the two. I helped walk them up, then I marched right in and found one staff in the kitchen. She stated she didn't let them out, they just left. When I asked who was in charge, she said she was, and there was another staff upstairs. I could have killed this man. Myself, my family, other families passing by, and I was basically fluffed off. Vulnerable people are being referred to this place for care? Horrible. I could go on and on. She hasn't heard the last I was devastated. It never happened. There were bugs on the floor. R.I.P. Uncle Russ. So, I started reading government reports. And for 40 years, they have been recommended to be closed down. Because, for one, they're unregulated. They're unsafe. They go against every single best practice that the government wrote themselves. There was an absurd amount of financial abuse, fires, rats, and moldy food. So during COVID, I got really freaking stressed out about it. There was no reporting, no public health reports, no regulations, and no data around what was happening there, who was accessing vaccines, what would be necessary for the healthcare providers. At this time, I started working with this really awesome project at Carleton called the COVID-19 Tracing Data Project. And for every Sunday, there was a team of us, of a bunch of very amazing open data nerds, who would work together for five hours, collecting every piece of data we could. Tediously, we would look through photos, websites, Google Maps, Facebook pages, and we got lots of data. Today, there are more than 8,000 people living in these institutions in Ontario. Just over 10 years, they've grown by more than 3,000 people, and there still isn't any data on it. Now, I think the thing that made me most furious was the lack of reporting and the lack of interrogating this system of institutionalization. And health units didn't have to identify them. So again, there was no data, except for the ones I was collecting. That's why we're here, telling these stories. Because people with disabilities and their ongoing institutionalization is being invisibilized, and we need a reckoning. I think about Pierre Burton's words once more. Should dozens of small bodies be found the next morning in the ashes, do not say that you did not know what it was like behind those plaster walls or underneath those peeling wooden ceilings. We cannot say we did not know what it was like beyond those walls that result in dozens of bodies found in the ashes of COVID-19. Why are people still subject to institutionalization? Why haven't we learned from the past? I think about it a lot, and I say, why did this happen to me and so many Canadians? Did they hate us? Why? And, and that question will be the rest of our lives. We'll be asking, why? And while I know the answer to these questions, you all need to as well. I thought we should start by driving an hour south in my friend's 2004 Subaru on Highway 7 to the regional center 
to Smith Falls. What do you bring with you to a place you wish had never existed? I packed a large vat of coffee, my favorite handkerchief, and a sunflower to lay down at the memorial. I pack my trusty anti-nausea medication and a large bottle of water. I moved to Ottawa just a couple months before the pandemic, and I don't drive. So it's really just the first time I'm leaving the city limits. The sun is so hot on the drive, and I can't get over how lush and dense the trees are. I'm from the prairies, and I'm used to being able to see everything, the entire landscape. The Rideau Regional Center is on the outskirts of the town of Smith Falls, isolated from Ottawa, isolated from the rest of town even. If you look at an aerial view, you can see just how isolated it is. A 350-acre property surrounded only by acres and acres of dense forest. The geography, just another tool to invisibilize this institution, to invisibilize the people it contained. From Queen Street, we can't see much past the dense tree line. We turn left onto Rideau Regional Center Drive. There are two giant signs greeting us, proclaiming the Gallipo Center, and beside it, a for-lease sign. The only trace of the history was the street sign at the intersection. It fades as we make our way down the long driveway. This road is the only way to get in or out of the grounds. A kilometer of concrete. You can see all the way down. We are driving on the grounds and... Pretty well maintained. It's shockingly well maintained. I did not anticipate this. Um, Like everything, all the grass is very cut and mowed which must be like an extensive mowing process because we've been driving down Rideau Regional Center Road for a time now. It's at least a 15-minute walk down the kilometer of concrete. Driving down it, I think about the children labeled with intellectual disabilities who were driven down this driveway by parents, parents who love them, parents who are ashamed of them, Parents they would never see again. Many other children were driven by the Children's Aid Society workers. Others, the Ontario Provincial Police. This drive was a route to abandonment. I remember at Reed Original when I went with my worker. We got out of the car. The buildings were tall and they were, they were straight. And they all looked like tombstones. And I walk into the mission ward. With, with my worker, and he turned around and said goodbye, goodbye, and he left me. So straight ahead, there is a theater, reception hall, parrot partner, day-to-day massage therapy, pie bird bakery, and tea room, indoor winter golf school, apartments, Hilton's Unforgettable Tales, The Hub Pool, One-on-One Fitness. Okay, so they just have fully 
completely taken over the grounds. So somewhere on the grounds, they have a memorial plaque. But I would not say that it is exceptionally... I'm just, like, completely shocked that all of these buildings have been taken over. It's like a full campus. Like, it... They... Yeah. Weird. Like, if you didn't know the history of this, you're kind of like, why does this exist? (laughs) Yeah. Like, they have completely repurposed every building. And there's obviously a history for it to be in this sort of situation. But, like, it isn't apparent what that history is in any way. In 2011, the institutional property was sold to the Gallipo Center. In that time, some of the institution has been taken over, repurposed into commercial retail, venues, coffee shops. Nestled in the heart of the countryside, but walking distance from downtown Smith Falls, the Gallipo Center is perfectly located, providing anything you need. With 800,000 square feet of available lease space and over 350 acres of land, the facility can accommodate almost anything. 350 acres of land, 800,000 square feet of lease space, and no room for a memorial. The buildings that look like tombstones have been made into fitness studios, coffee shops defaced by paintball studios, their advertisements promoting. Say I do at the Gallipo Center. Let us share in your special day and set the stage for a lifetime of adventure. Our event spaces provide you with a blank canvas to allow the vision of your dream day to unfold. The center is many things, but A blank canvas is probably the furthest thing from it. There isn't an inch, a millimeter of this canvas that hasn't been colored by confinement, violence, and resistance. Invisibility is a danger that we can't risk any longer. My next guest has been working hard on this. Madeline Burkhart is a historian and professor. Her book, Broken, is a complete social history of the Rideau Regional Center and institutionalization in Ontario. It's one of my very favorites. One of the things that Dr. Burkhart does so well is explain that there's not just one history. What I think was really important to uh, understand if we think we go back to 1876, but you know the last institution in Ontario didn't close until 2009, so not that long ago. That in that one, you know, almost 140 year span, there were lots of time periods when institutions became even more popular, or they sort of um, they maintained their popularity throughout that whole time. Uh, sometimes for different reasons, but the fundamental ideology underlying them remained, which was that it was important to remove uh, certain people from the population and segregate them from the rest of society and put them in these these huge uh, places where so-called care would be provided, right? And so an example of that is at the turn of the 20th century, you know, the late 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, the eugenics movement was very strong in both Canada and the United States. And the eugenics movement played a big role in 
keeping that institutional movement going, feeding institutions with large numbers of people, because eugenics was all about removing people from the population who were seen as um, people who would contaminate the gene pool. This was this was an effort to stop them from reproducing and stop them from having their own families or their own children. And institutions were a tool that would help in that process, right? They could take people out of the population. And also lots of institutions, especially in Alberta and BC, became locations of sterilization. There's going to be a whole episode about eugenics, specifically in Alberta and BC, later in the series. Eugenics are a phony, racist pseudoscience developed in 1883 by Francis Galton. He described it as the science of improving stock, not only by judicious mating, but whatever tends to give the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. So basically, this is a phony scientific justification for white supremacy. By removing people labeled as less suitable and preventing them at all costs from reproducing. In Ontario, this is what institutions were used for. To sexually segregate people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities as early as possible. Prevent them from having children, partners, families. In Ontario, Dr. Helen McMurkey was a prominent white supremacist, eugenicist, and special inspector of institutions for the feeble-minded. In her role, she fought for the institutionalization of children as young as possible in an effort to remove them from society before they became, and I quote, a eugenic threat. And get this, to this day, McMurkey is celebrated by both the provincial and federal government as a woman of national historical significance. That makes me nauseous. During her reign, McMurkey and the Eugenics Society was so committed to the removal of children that they sought to test every single child in schools, orphanages, and those in the custody of welfare. Eugenics practice meant that men and women were segregated apart from each other, even in death. So keen were the officials that there be no possibility of sex or propagation by these deviants, that upon death men and women were sometimes buried in separate burial grounds. Beyond segregation, there were other eugenic tactics too. David McKillop was the lead plaintiff on the class action lawsuit filed against the Ontario government as a survivor of the Rideau Regional Center. While at Rideau, David was physically and mentally abused by staff members and other residents. At one point, he was violently kicked in the groin by a staff member. David is married, but as a result of that violent kick, he has been unable to have children. Here's Dr. Burkhardt again, explaining how eugenics policy was implemented. Interestingly enough, I learned that when 
at school, like when um, primary education became public and mandatory, that interestingly enough also increased the admissions to institutions because then children were in this public space where they could be monitored and assessed. And uh, during the eugenics period, there was a uh, big emphasis on identifying children who were seen as being feeble-minded and sending them off to institutions. And so sort of strangely, public education, free public education actually facilitated the growth of institutions. It's important to put this in context. And the most notorious national context for eugenics was that of Nazi Germany under the banner of racial hygiene. These policies resulted in the forced sterilization and mass murder of more than 6 million Jewish people and more than 5 million people deemed inferior, particularly Romani people, queer people, and disabled people, at least 300,000 of whom were killed in institutions targeted because of their mental or physical disability. And even though Canada fought against the Nazis, there are lots of connections between Nazi Germany and North American eugenics. For instance, the personal relationships between eugenicists and sharing of ideas and eugenic practices. This connection is also obvious in Hitler's admiration of Canada's residential school system, the genocidal assimilationist boarding schools that confined 150,000 Indigenous children and killed at least 6,000 children. In these federally mandated institutions, children were stolen from their communities, forbidden from speaking their languages, practicing their culture, and forced to endure abuse, medical experimentation, and fatal conditions. And while eugenic ideas all connect these places, it's also important to recognize their differences. Assimilationist boarding schools were federally mandated, which meant that there were entire communities, towns, cities without children. And residential schools were part of a broader set of policies that enacted so much violence and harm, meeting the legal definition of genocide. So eugenic ideology and its ties with Nazism surely didn't end institutionalization or the use of eugenic policy in Canada. In fact, the institutions were continuing to grow in population after World War II. Here's Dr. Burghardt again. And then there were other time periods where that happened as well. For example, after the Second World War, there were a, a lot of families who were hoping to have their children admitted to institutions. And a lot of that had to do with uh, stigma at the time around um, disability, particularly intellectual disability, families trying to establish themselves in the post-war climate, um, you know, building strong nuclear families. And a child with a disability didn't really help with that image, right? So, so just to say this popularity uh, was maintained over the years, 
for different reasons, but the fundamental ideology remained the same. The fundamental ideology remains the same. The belief that people with disabilities should be congregated at the lowest cost possible. Now, it's important to note that this ideology is rooted in ableism, the system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, desirability, and productivity. That's the why that Joe was asking about. That's the why we're going to continue addressing. Institutions were used as a tool to spend as little money as possible. The government figured economies of scale. It's cheaper to have more people in one place. But the institutions were overcrowded and the population was only growing. Costs were cut on every corner. Paid staff replaced by unpaid inmates who were responsible for producing, preparing, and distributing food to more than 2,000 people. Here's Dr. Burkhart once more. This, another sort of overriding feature of institutions was their size. Um, the institutions that I focus on mostly in my work were the really big institutions, the big government-run institutions in Ontario. So there were three really large ones. There was the Huronia Regional Centre near Aurelia, and there was the um, Cedar Springs Institution in the southwest corner of the province, and then there was the Rideau Regional Centre near Ottawa. Those were the three big main ones. And those three were really huge, like they could fit thousands of residents in them. I think Rideau originally was designed to house 3,000 people. Um, I don't know that it, I don't think it ever actually reached that maximum capacity, but, um, but certainly the idea was that you could fit a small town, uh, the size of a small town inside these complexes. And they really were complexes. There were main buildings and then there were, um, off, you know, buildings that they called cottages, which if you've ever gone to the Huronia site, you'll see that these cottages were huge. They're not cottages. They're just smaller buildings than the main one. And at Rideau, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, all the buildings were connected by hallways. The idea being this was a modern building, so people didn't have to go outside in the winter, which just meant hallways that were super, super long. So these were huge buildings. And the reason it's important to think about that is because it's uh, the bigger the facility, the harder it is to respect any of the needs and desires of individual people. The long hallways remind me of the long driveway we had to take. The long hallways remind me of darkness, secluded areas. Between doors and cross halls were used to hide abuses. The design of this entire institution to confine, to hide people, to hide abuses, to hide criminal conditions. 
I feel claustrophobic in the 800,000 square feet of institution. And it was really weird walking around from where we were in the car because um, where we walk up to now, everything is, like, in order. It doesn't look like if you creeped through any of the windows, you would find 20 mattresses stacked together or shattered glass. It's nice to be sitting down again because it was just, like, for me, it just felt so overwhelming to be surrounded by it. And we still are, but... We were in the back before, and it was literally only building and only disrepair and only, I don't know. But now there's, we're near the Tai Chi Academy and the theater and these apartments. How are you doing, Kit? I'm doing okay. I'm feeling like you were um, with being surrounded by, like, what... places that just seem like haunted houses like and they just keep going you go into one a courtyard and it's just all empty and like trying to peek in the windows and looking through and seeing what's in there and what strange things have been collected in the rooms and then you go in you're like oh we'll go on to the next spot and it's just the same thing over and over again um and like the buildings are all shaped the same so yeah it just kind of feels endless so we didn't make it all the way through we turned around because it was just a lot and Even though the grounds of this institution are huge, they're still so crowded. Here's Patricia Seth. She's a survivor of the Heronia Regional Center and one of the lead plaintiffs in the Heronia Regional Center class action lawsuit. Patricia uses storytelling, advocacy, and education to raise awareness about the violence of institutions. Her audio documentary, Crystal in the Stew is on the CBC, and it's fantastic. It was like living in jail. They called it cottages to fool the people, okay? So that people would think it was a wonderful place to live in. They don't have a picture of that you're locked in. Okay, that you're that you get counted before and after your meals, counted before your medicine. They would say medicine girls line up and you have to get right in a lineup. Military style. That experience of control was really important. And so many other survivors shared that experience of being removed of their autonomy, individuality, and personhood to become a number. Even in death, people were removed of their personhood. The Heronia Regional Center was the only institution in Ontario with a cemetery, a mass grave on its grounds. Until 1958, the markers bore only a number, the order that inmates died in. But anything else, any information about the person buried beneath them, disappeared. In large institutional settings, people are stripped 
of so many aspects of their identity. Here's Liz. I wish I had fun going out shopping and everything like that, all that fun stuff. And I couldn't do that. You're going to have anything. That made me feel sad and feel like you're nothing. We couldn't uh, have our clothes and they give us uh, some clothes and somebody else's clothes. I can do my hair and I can do my own stuff. And I didn't feel beautiful in it. Watching archival footage of the institution, all the children are dressed the same in matching striped jumpers, collared shirts, and dresses. Shoes, clothes, and linen were given by the institution, but somehow they were still never the right size. Dorm rooms free of any personality. Dorm rooms locked day and night. And the washrooms. The washrooms had no doors, no doors between toilets. The showers, no dividers. Here's Pierre Burton's description. On one floor, there is one wash basin to serve 64 persons. On another floor, where the patient sometimes must be bathed twice or three times a day, there is one bathtub for 144 persons, together with three shower outlets and eight toilets. Prisoners in reformatories have better facilities. Hundreds of thousands of square feet and not enough space for a bathtub. And it makes me think about places that still run today. Institutions that have one bathroom for 80, 100 residents. I think once more about the long-term care institutions during COVID, the ones where there weren't enough workers to shower residents, the ones where residents were forced to sit in their urine and feces for days. Um, we weren't allowed to leave our rooms except to go to the shower room for a shower once a week. We weren't allowed to um, use any of the common areas in the facility. So the cafeteria, um, the worship center, the courtyard, the library, um, going outside, none of that stuff, stuff was allowed. And then um, we weren't allowed to have family drop off anything for us, like laundry, food, supplies, like anything. Institutions are not designed for the people living there, but for that fundamental ideology that people with disabilities should be isolated and congregated at the lowest cost possible. But the other crucial thing about the size, besides the fact that if you're gonna, if the thing is gonna function at all, 
it has to be done efficiently and you're going to suppress the needs and desires of individual people is that a bigger place also hides when abuse happens it's much easier for abuse whether it's uh, verbal harassment or physical or sexual abuse it's much easier for that to happen in a place that's really big there are more places to hide um, there are more ways to cover it up um, so that's another a uh, really important thing to note is that the bigger the place, the easier it is for harm to happen. And that was that was true of what happened in all those places. All of the survivors I spoke with, and I, I spoke with people who lived in all, of, all three of those large institutions, all of them either witnessed or experienced abuse. And uh, it was consistent. And so, I mean, there's there's a connection there. There's evidence that such a huge structure can can hide can cover up these these uh, instances of really severe and tragic harm it makes me so sad but more than anything it makes me furious that we still have not learned i think once more about the long hallways the dark corners, the hiding places. I think about the story of Jean Leach, a Franco-Ontarian woman. At 10, she was abandoned by the Children's Aid Society at the Rideau Regional Center. She grew up there. She had friends, birthday cakes, but no access to French education. So she worked in the laundry for pennies an hour. One day, while at work, she was raped by a paid worker. She got pregnant and carried the baby boy to term. While pregnant, she was routinely tortured, given ice packs where she was put into a nightie, wrapped in sheets, placed on ice, and dumped cold water. Many residents were subject to torture in the name of treatment. After giving birth, Jean-Marie was told that the baby was stillborn, but she never got to see them, meet them, name them, or even bury her child. Years later, she was taken to the cemetery. There, were so many graves of babies from the Rideau Regional Center. Babies whose death was marked only with iron bar crosses. They hid the names. They hid the burials. They hid the memorial. Hell, they managed to hide a 350-acre institution and disguise it as a mall. They are so set on hiding things. But survivors have worked for decades to share their stories of incarceration. Remember, Every Name is one of them. It's a group led by survivors of the Heronia Regional Center that was open in Orillia, Ontario from 1876 to 2009. And the site of horrific abuse. 
It rests on stolen ancestral lands of the Iroquois and Algonquin-speaking peoples, the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Petun, and the ceded lands of the Anishinaabe. Remember Every Name is committed to making sure that people locally and nationally remember the brutal and recent history of eugenics and abuse that took place on this site. They have been committed to properly memorializing people who died in institutions. They worked to expose the removal of gravestones and the installation of a septic tank through the cemetery that holds at least 1,379 people who died at the Heronia Regional Center. But due to poor record keeping and the removal of grave markers, the exact number of people in this cemetery is unknown. It could be more than 2,000. Remember Every Name built their own memorial, one that properly honors the people buried there. It reads, If these walls could talk, crows have long memories and remind us we are not alone in caring for this place and the people buried here. They call out and encourage us to speak and demand the truth. As survivors, we call on our communities to listen and learn from our experiences so history will not repeat itself. Butterflies represent the freedom and achievements of survivors' lives outside the institution. Forget-me-nots signify our commitment to remembering what must never be forgotten. This monument serves as a testament to the pain and hope of people who are now free but who can never forget and to the dream and struggle to end all institutions where people are not free. Hear the chorus of our hearts. Honor every death. Remember every name. Cherish every life. Dedicated August 24th, 2019 to all those who survived living at Heronia Regional Center and to those whose lives ended here. May peace be with them. After 60 years of advocacy, after 60 years of survivors, allies, and families building coalitions, after 40 years of the government first demanding the closure of these centers, Rideau, Heronia, and the Southwest Regional Center finally closed in 2009. Four years later, in 2013, the government settled the class action lawsuit with survivors. And in 2014, the government issued an apology and placed memorials without the consultation of survivors. Mr. Speaker, a government's responsibility is to care for its people, to make sure they are protected and safe. And therein lies a basic trust between the state and the people. It is on that foundation of trust that everything else is built, our sense of self, our sense of community, our sense of purpose. And when that trust is broken with any one of us, we all lose something. We're all diminished. 
I offer an apology to the men, women, and children of Ontario who were failed by a model of institutional care for people with developmental disabilities. We must look in the eyes of those who have been affected and to those they leave behind and say we are sorry. As Premier and on behalf of all of the people of Ontario, I am sorry for your pain, for your losses, and for the impact that these experiences must have had on your faith in this province and in your government. I am sorry for what you and your loved ones experienced and for the pain that you carry to this day. Over a period of generations and under various governments, too many of these men, women, children and their families were deeply harmed and continue to bear the scars and the consequences of this time. Their humanity was undermined, they were separated from their families and robbed of their potential, their comfort, their safety and their dignity. Even as those institutions closed, even as apologies were made, people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities were shuffled into other institutions. Institutions are like hydras. As one head is cut off, two more emerge. The one I'm looking at is a domiciliary hostel, a private, for-profit institution for people with disabilities that is kind of, but barely regulated by municipalities. It's a two-minute drive to the institution. In 2009, when Rideau closed, many residents were shuffled across the street. We're now just outside Chardon Manor. We're going to get out of the car because we're a little bit nosy. Um, they interviewed a few residents, and the residents had largely been moved from Rideau to here. Now, when was that? Do you know? That was in 2009. And so now we're looking at Chardon Manor, and there's a gigantic hole attached to it. And on the second floor, there's a door that just opens into the pit. So that seems super safe. I mean, they must be building a new facility. That's a basement. Yeah, so they just got a grant to expand. Okay, yeah. That's exactly but right now, they still only have one bathroom. Seriously. So that's cool. Okay, this is us getting out of the car. And there's not a lot of information on domiciliary hostels out there. These places are creepy, have so many fires, so many rats, so many missing people, so many people hidden behind walls of trees. I think once more to Joe. He asked why. Institutions will remain as long as we live in an ableist society whose response to disability is confinement. The desire to invisibilize these institutions will never allow for the freedom of people with disabilities. So we're on a mission to change that. Join us. Invisible Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support and advisement from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. 
audio post-production, sound design, and additional narration were by the amazing Helena Krobath. Our theme music was composed by Bara Hladek. Many, many thanks to go out today. So thank you to our guests, Dr. Madeline Burkhart, Vicki Levac, David Wearmy, Shelley Fletcher, Donnie McLean, and thank you Liz Friesen, Joe Clayton, and Patricia Seth from their audio on the Truths of Institutionalization. The Truths of Institutionalization is an online resource for all ages to better understand our history of institutionalization. Extra special thanks to Alex Johnston for the voice acting and some of the narration in today's episode. And special thanks to all the reporting, storytelling, and documenting done by Patricia Seth in The Gristle and the Stew, Kate Rossiter, David McKillop, Mary Slark, Madeline Burkhart, Pierre Burton, and to the generations of self-advocates, survivors, and currently institutionalized people who have always led this resistance. Special thanks also go out to Kit Chalkley and Kendall David. Thanks. Talk soon.